Women will admit if they need help, men will just not seek the help until it's too late. So I think, I think we need to start normalizing the ability to admit if you're st suffering. Because I think for a lot of people, because whether they're afraid to cry in public or admit that they're in trouble, they view that as a sign of weakness. Whereas I want to change the perception as viewing the inability to share your emotions as a sign of weakness. People who are scared of sharing their emotions, they are fundamentally weak in a way that needs incredible amount, incredible amount of healing. So I want to try to change the paradigm and saying these are socially acceptable and not only are they socially acceptable, it is a sign of social strength to be able to do something. Welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm here with Anurud Garg, uh, the author of The Greater Man, which is coming out in December. And I'm your host, PJ Weary. Uh, so happy to have you here today. Uh, thank you, PJ, for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. And so today what we're going to be covering is kind of the topic of your book um, with the way the world is changing. How should we define masculinity? And so yeah, just so, as we get, actually, I was going to say, just before we like, uh, tell us a little bit how you got interested in this topic and how, uh, just a little bit of your life story so we can get some context for, um, why you wrote this book and where you're coming from with this question. Of course. So actually, um, the, the story is kind of strange because I got an Instagram DM from a professor at Georgetown. And he basically told me, I'm doing a think tank a startup where we try to get young, aspiring, creative people to write books. I think he came across a podcast that I did a long time ago and decided, I want you to write a book. And at that point, uh, it was in the middle of the pandemic. So back in June of 2020, I didn't know what to do. So I thought, what are the things that I care about? And immediately afterwards, it was the one year anniversary of my grandfather's death. And mm. I thought back about how much of a great inspiration he was to me. And a lot of the understandings that I have for the expectations it is to be a man came from lessons that he and my dad gave me. So I decided I want to do a book on modern masculinity to try to share those lessons in a way that helps young men benefit in the modern world. Because I view things like toxic masculinity as a lack of masculinity. So I want to create good systems for people to make the best of their lives and to give back to their community. Really interesting. And for you, some of that has to do with the economics of it, too. I, I know that we talked a little bit about that. Um, well, so currently you're studying, correct? Yes, uh, I'm right now in my last year getting my bachelor's of science in economics, and I'm trying to apply for grad school to hopefully get my PhD one day. But I love using economics because there's an entire math field called econometrics, which is just dedicated to trying to find causational relationships between distinct ideas. So, for example, uh, one study that came across uh, was the effect that alcohol has on domestic abuse. They found with 95% certainty that for every 10% their increase in the concentration of liquor stores there is in a county, there's a 28% increase in domestic violence. So we can try to start piecing together how different social conditions, how different decisions that we make on a macro society-wide level will affect individuals. And ways that individuals can reverse, make themselves better, uh, invest in themselves to give back to society. So looking at that relationship, that helped me a lot based on the understanding of mathematics and economic models that I have right now. 
Awesome. And for you working through things like uh, econometrics, um, I think you also mentioned that you've been looking into AI as a field as well, obviously, because things like machine learning can help us uh, sort through big data, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, I've actually done an internship uh, at a healthcare startup where we're trying to use uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, in order to f connect people who are trying to buy in the healthcare market. Because if you look at the economics of the healthcare market, it is confusing. It's it's a mess. I don't think anyone uh, would disagree with you on that. <laughs> and so the AI, the whole idea was there's so much asymmetry in bargaining in the healthcare market. How do we improve the efficiency of the market by trying to get more and more people the information they need on what type of doctors and what type of treatments? Uh, and that was the, my struggle for a whole of this summer. And it, it was quite difficult, but I learned a lot about how we're trying to use AI to supplement a lot of the issues that we have, whether it's bureaucratic red tape, whether that's the inability for insurance providers and payers to communicate with each other. And I'm thinking about the broader macro sense about how AI is going to massively disrupt our economy. Hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to very much think about the future proofing of any idea that we get, because I would like to say that, okay, we can live the same lives as our grandparents did. If you have a strong back, you can make a living as a uh, working in the lumber industry, working in a coal mine, but those jobs are disappearing. A lot of them are yeah. being automated by green technology or different types of technology. So we need different skill sets. So my question is, how do we encourage people to build the right attitudes to get those skill sets? Awesome. Yeah, obviously important, right? Like, no one's going to disagree with that. And uh, I'm curious, uh, in your healthcare AI internship, uh, did you find anything that helped you as you were working through the uh, your book on masculinity? Uh, yes, there were actually a couple of things. Uh, one of the things is that a lot of what we understand is uh, about masculinity or about social trends is not very data driven. Uh, so just simple, simple things as when I was trying to create like some sort of platform to connect people who are trying to buy healthcare, uh, we were dealing with a lot of older people, especially it is so difficult to find nursing in uh, a lot of rural areas in the United States because a lot of nurses just moved to the bigger cities. Yeah. And that's actually going forward. Nursing is going to be a six-figure job. We're going to have a huge shortage of nurses. And one of the reasons why is because only women are choosing to become nurses. Men are not. It's not viewed as a masculine profession. So yeah. it's kind of hampering down our ability to respond with aging populations in rural areas. And that's drastically increasing our uh, healthcare costs, especially in places that don't have a high cost of living in the first place or the infrastructure to deal with it. Right. Because a six-figure job in uh, California or New York is very different from one in, you know, I mean, we used to live in Orlando. Now we're out in rural central Florida. We're kind of in between. But if you go further out, like, I mean, we talk about the money that we make working for California clients and people around us, you know, raise their eyebrows because they can't like it's hard. You know, it's what we have a thousand people moving to Florida a day right now. And that, oh, wow. the housing market is just nuts. And it's because people don't understand. Um, and, but it, it affects things like nursing because nursing gets standardized in its wages in a lot of ways. It, it, I'm uh, trying to bring this back around. At least. Yes. Oh. And it, you, you talk about like rural versus urban. It's, it's insane how like even Orlando to, uh, say Lake County, oh. you know, a rural area, like it, it <laughs> you have quite like $30 an hour is a totally different thing place to place.
Yeah, if, if you want a fact that'll blow your mind, uh, I've actually done the calculations before at CPI cost of living. Uh, $100,000 in New York is the equivalent of $36,000 in Omaha, Nebraska. Yes. Yeah, so I believe it 100%. The, the cost differentials just because of housing, uh, transportation, food costs, it's astronomical. Yes. Yeah. Um, we literally moved further out because it was $900,000 in our neighborhood for the house we wanted. And it was uh, just under 400 here where we are, which to me was like, we work from home. So commute wasn't a big deal. It's like, that's not a very hard calculation. <laughs> so, I'm in Texas and I have family in California. I, I am completely flabbergasted by the difference in housing prices. Yeah, we were just talking to uh, someone we work with in California, and it's like millions of dollars for a 3-2, which would just, yes, blow people's minds. Exactly. Um, so that really interesting. So uh, how is that something we need to fix? Should we have more men go into nursing? How would we do that? So generally speaking, uh, I like to think of masculinity as three parts. Uh, a lot of it is solution-driven, but the three parts of masculinity I, I view as uh, being accountable for people in your life. Uh, then also uh, creating a passion, a drive to achieve something greater, and finally to be free of your vices. So I view masculinity as best when men are tapped in to solve the problems that we have. Whether that means for some men to invest in the nursing field, go into it, maybe innovate inside the nursing field, making it a lot better, uh, or that means creating good systems so that men find it easier to get into nursing school, that nursing school is a bit more applicable. Uh, we create systems where we encourage men to go to college more often because the sad truth is uh, it's expected, I don't know if you've read the latest Washington Post report, but it's expected that class of 20 2021 will have, I believe, 60 or 59.5% women and 40.5% men. So women are grossly over competing or grossly beating men in getting into college. And I'm looking at the society wide data of why that is. And I looked at about young men in poverty, and it seems that, at least in poverty, it's much more likely that women will escape poverty by getting better education than men. And when I see that, there are a lot of issues that men run into when they're trying to, especially when they're young and they're developing, a lot of behavioral issues that lead them down bad places that ultimately make them, well, that's very harmful for them and for society as a whole. So I'm trying to look at the trend across different generations, about different co age cohorts, and why people are making certain decisions that are harming themselves in society. So that was a big analysis in my book. Yeah, for sure. Um, so as you talk about your book, uh, can you give us like a, a <laughs> this might be too, like, can you give us a summary, like maybe walk us through your book and, uh, you know, even as you're talking there, there are some questions that occur to me, but I think, uh, I definitely would like to hear the summary of your book first. And I All think right, that so I might get some of those answers. Okay, so let's start with the first three parts. Uh, first sure. part, I care about making sure that people are accountable to their family members and loved ones because the sad truth is men are far more disposed, predisposed to antisocial behavior. And so that is something we just need to keep track of. We need to make sure that uh, young men are socialized well, they're engaging in their community, they're there for their families, they're building strong support networks. Here's the sad truth, at least in the United States, men are four times more likely to commit suicide than women. Yeah. One of the reasons why is because when men are dealing with trauma, or mental health issues or anxiety, they have fewer people to talk to and they on average have less friends than women. That leads them into a dark place where if there's no one to help them and they don't actively seek out help, a lot of them are going to take their lives. 
And I want to make sure that we start teaching young men from day one that it's important to make strong friends, to find good friends, uh, be more social, be more empathetic, practice being a bit more vulnerable, talking about your emotions, because while some of you might view that as a sign of weakness, it's actually the first step to healing, which takes a lot more strength than to run away from any problems that you have. So that's one of the big parts in the first part. And the second part, I care a lot about making sure that men are motivated to succeed. Uh, I genuinely view that most people will need a purpose in life, that they need something to drive them forward. And for a lot of young men, there are too many distractions. They might end up just uh, spending all their time playing video games, watching pornography, not moving forward in life. So I'm thinking about systems about how do we convince people to invest more in their time and try to find some sort of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and fulfillment from trying to pursue, whether that be in the arts, whether that be in business, whether that be in science and technology and research, encouraging people to give back into society and create value for themselves. And then the last part is about being free from your vices. Unfortunately, men are far more likely to get get addictive behaviors. Men and women try gambling at about the same rate. Uh, men are 10 times more likely to develop gambling addictions, whether that means spending money at a casino and poker or blackjack or speculating on Wall Street and losing their money on unfor unwise stock decisions. Those types of behaviors are very harmful, and not only for the individual, but larger society-wide. So my goal is how do we help people mitigate those risks? How do we move away from those addictive tendencies? So I, I talked about a lot of the psychological research, uh, biological, behavioral psychology research about how those patterns develop and how we can fight them. Awesome. And uh, so even as I, I'm hearing what you said earlier and I'm hearing what you said there, let's start with that uh, kind of those addictive behaviors. Are there macro decisions that we can make that help with those kind of addictive behavior behaviors yes from a debt from a data perspective of course uh, i always yeah. view things on two levels the first is what the individual can do and the second what we as a collective as a society can do because i think that both parts need to work together in order to solve some of these issues right. on the macro stage one of the first things that we can do with regard to gambling addiction is making it much more difficult for young people to ex be exposed to gambling because uh this is actually a big revolution in some places where their uh, video games end up having a lot of incentives inside them where they are teaching children to the same reward mechanisms as gambling, uh, microtransactions, those Loot types boxes. of behaviors. Yes. Yeah, that makes it incredibly difficult. Uh, well, from a young age, it's already programming children to start expecting this type of transaction, a gambling transaction. Uh, so those t legislation making that much more difficult to happen, that, that would be a first step on gambling. Whether it be about substance abuse, uh, one thing that I care about is making sure that we properly, uh, the way that we market to children is done properly, whether that means like sugary addictive additives in food, whether that means uh, alcohol, the mixed messages that we send around it. We don't create good relationships with the with a lot of illicit substances, and that makes it so much harder once when children who have not been socialized properly towards it are just bombarded with it 24-7, and that leads them down to a dark role. Yeah, and it's really interesting, uh, you know, you even mentioned that. I remember seeing a study about how France has more alcoholism, uh, a percentage of the population, but they have less binge drinking and less alcohol-related violence because they have a culture built around, they drink more, but they drink, and I don't want to say responsibly, obviously they have they have physical repercussions of that, but it doesn't result in this kind of reckless behavior, if that makes sense. And some of this is the, the way the whole culture is built. 
Yeah, that and it's culture is a large determinant of how certain behaviors are are predicted. So, for example, the United States has a gun culture. There's, uh, we have an issue with guns being used for suicides, for homicides, for crime, but yeah. other countries have just as many guns. Uh, Switzerland has almost the same number of guns per capita as the United States, but their gun crime is very low because they create a good cu- gun culture about how do we keep guns safe, you know, treat the gun with respect, teaching children from day one how to treat treat it responsibly, not treating them like toys. Our cultural attitudes towards a lot of things, whether it be drugs, whether it be alcohol, whether it be pornography, sex, uh, whether it be guns, creating a good system and good relationship with them to do it in moderation or at least do it responsibly or more responsibly, harm reduction, uh, that's a necessary first step in order to reduce these things. Uh, It's such such a crazy left field example, but I remember a friend of mine, I believe, uh, it was one of the groomsmen at my wedding, but he's Canadian, and he just couldn't stop laughing at the idea. Uh, I believe it's in Alaska. I don't want to get all the details wrong, but the, I remember the essentials of it. It's a place called Hyde, or Hyder. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's a very small town. It has the highest number of uh, violence-related uh, gun in a, uh, activities in America. And basically, they have an activity people travel there to do called getting hyderized. And they have a special alcohol that I believe it's like 120. No, no, I think it's like it's like Everclear. It's like 180 proof, something like that. And they drink it and then they go out out the back of the bar and there's a 50 cal machine gun that they fire at the range. And (laughs) that is... It, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that's not a good idea. Yeah, and I don't, I don't remember all the details. I remember, like, in essence, that's definitely the idea. The idea was to get as wasted as possible, then go out and shoot a 50 cal machine gun. And that is very much, I mean, I see stuff like that in Florida. I know that's a surprise to people. Um, it's like, come shoot an assault rifle. It's fun. And it's like, I don't, like, when you talk about creating a culture of guns as toys, like, um, there's, <laughs> gun control is a whole separate thing from, like, hey, maybe we shouldn't talk about, like, these are not, I, even with my kids, uh, I talk with them about, like, knives are tools, not toys. And uh, I, I, I very much resonate with that point, what you're saying, that it's like, guns shouldn't necessarily be fun, right? Like, you can use them for specific things, but, like, that's not their point. Well, the, the sad thing, well, unfortunately, guns are very fun. That's just the truth. <laughs> if you, yeah, if, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, they are very fun, so it's just But using of, that okay, language can, around them. Yeah. That, so, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, once again, yeah. Once again, I would because I wanted to teach. Uh, I, I've taught a couple of my friends actually how to fire guns, and the first yeah. thing that I always drill them, like a drill sergeant, is treat yeah. every gun like it's loaded. Do not yes. point it at a person unless you're going to shoot. Yes. Keep your finger off the trigger unless you're ready to pull. All those rules about gun safety, I repeated again and again and again. I live, breathe it because I encourage everyone, whenever they're handling any type of firearm, anything that's dangerous, that they do so in the most responsible way possible. And I think that accountability and internalizing that. In economics, we have something called externalities, where any action we do can have unintended consequences outside of us. I very much care about being as agentic as possible and making sure that we are as responsible for our own actions as possible. Because that is so important whenever you're dealing with something like alcohol, whether it's firearms, anything what has a has the potential to go very wrong you should be as careful as possible so a type of discipline and self control that that's something i reiterate multiple points in my book 
Yes, and so uh, you know, even as I'm listening to you, I, I appreciate that because uh, I am not the kind of I don't own a gun, but I have friends uh, who like pulled me aside and was like, we're going to go shooting, and they've taken me shooting. They're a part of that culture, and I was grateful because they were responsible and they did like you know like over and over again because it is uh it is a dangerous activity just like honestly drinking alcohol is you know i mean there are these are adult activities for a reason right mm -hmm. yeah yeah um so go ahead. there are some countries who do it from a young age the idea isn't to say draw a strong distinction this is an adult activity and this is a child's activity because at this that is point, a responsible kid, activity something yes that's better if yes. you tell a kid no, you can't true. do something they're going to want to do it which yes. i think bad responsibility bad outcome the most thing most important thing is with supervision teach them how to do it right so they do it right a hundred percent of the time yeah actually and you know uh thank you for correcting me on that because even when we i talked about the french and their culture of it they start drinking at an earlier age they let their kids drink but the way that they teach them you know and i definitely when it comes to my own kids i think that's a better model not that i would want them to drink a lot because they have a developing body but it's better the idea of like going to college you've never drunk before and then as soon as you're away from your parents and you're in a new situation getting wasted does not seem like <laughs> the best way to be introduced to a new and dangerous substance right exactly <laughs> I'm very critical of fraternities uh, for that reason, even yeah. in my book, about how they reinforce negative drinking habits. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was really curious, and you mentioned this about uh, your, the reason you wanted to write this was because of your thinking about your grandfather passed, which it mm -hmm. sounds like that's happened some time ago, but my condolences, um, and, uh, your, uh, and your dad. So talk to me a little bit about that connection. What did you see in them that made you want to write this book? So I, my grandfather was a very wild man. He, he was incredible. Uh, okay. He started multiple businesses. All of them failed. Uh, he at one point took money from a loan shark who decided to, uh, because my grandfather wasn't paying the money back, uh, put a bomb in his motorcycle and, um, and tried to kill him. Uh, he's lived a crazy life. He's gone all over the place. And even at the age of 71, which is right before he passed away, he was blind in one eye. He lost 70% of the veins in his body. He had almost no motor control. He couldn't pick up a pencil to write. He was riding a motorcycle down the busy streets of Bangalore. And if you've ever seen Indian traffic, it's a nightmare. Uh, he I, just I didn't care. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. No, I, uh, I have driven in uh, Cambodian traffic. So a um, little bit of an idea. Yeah. Anyways, um, not, not the safest. No, people do not follow <laughs> safety rules. Yeah, but he, uh, he was, he's an incredible person. Uh, he moved to a house right, in front, right opposite uh, a police station. So mm -hmm. he, first thing he did, he made friends with a local police chief. And so when I was stuck in India a long time ago and my passport had expired, he basically moved the entire city around to try to make sure that my uh, passport was renewed so I could come back to the United States. This was back when I was like 16. And he, was, he had lived by this incredible mantra where if he says something, he will do it. Uh, if he says, I'm going to do this for you, it is done. There's nothing that can stop him from doing it. The reverse is if he asks something for you from you and you don't do it, there is hell to pay. <laughs> Very, yeah. Yeah, so how did that translate into your book? 
So one of the things that I've learned from my grandfather that it's so incredibly important that you take up agency for whatever you say. So my grandfather said, if you believe in something, fight for it and don't ever let an excuse prevent you from doing what's necessary. Consequently, my grandfather had a lot of downsides. He could not take criticism. In sense, he could take criticism in the sense that you could say something to him and he won't react negatively. He just won't listen to you. And so because he could never take criticism, uh, you could say a million vile things to him. He just won't react. He'll just take it and keep going forward. Uh, He's going to do what he's going to do. And that kind of blindsided him and made it so that whenever he started businesses and he was getting advice that, oh, this strategy isn't going to work, uh, he never took that to heart. And he ended up going bankrupt multiple times, kind of like Donald Trump. Actually, in many ways, my grandfather (laughs) had some of the similarities to Donald Trump. Uh, But That is not where I thought this was going to go. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, so I I kept thinking, he had so many good qualities, but his negatives changed it. So I thought, how do we create a system so that you are both committed, uh, ready to do whatever needs to be necessary, but also flexible enough to admit that you're wrong? And so Mm. that is something that I had to learn just growing up because I saw it in my grandfather and I realized that caused a lot of pain. My grandfather was a type 2 diabetic. Uh, He did not take his insulin on time. And the rest of the family, we were terrified that anything bad could happen to him. Yeah. And we lived in constant fear. And so I thought, okay, it's important that you're willing to do whatever you need to do. But the way that he did it caused more harm than good for a lot of people mm. around him. So I mm. thought, how do we capitalize the strengths of what he did without those weaknesses of making it very difficult to change, adapt to the times, or to even put your family's heart, heart rate at ease? Yeah, or even yourself. Yeah, that kind of self-care. Which is, I mean, even as you're talking about... Um, Things like suicide, things like, uh, you know, therapy, addictive substances. I mean, that's kind of, it sounds like a major thrust in your book. And there's like men do struggle with that, that kind of idea of self-care. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm tracking with you here. Yeah, no, no. Uh, The difference between men and women is that women will admit if they need help, men will just not seek the help until it's too late. So I think... I think we need to start normalizing the ability to admit if you're suffering. Because I think for a lot of people, because whether they're afraid to cry in public or admit that they're in trouble, they view that as a sign of weakness. Whereas I want to change the perception as viewing the inability to share your emotions as a sign of weakness. People who are scared of sharing their emotions, they are fundamentally weak in a way that needs an incredible amount of healing. So I want to try to change the paradigm and saying these are socially acceptable. And not only are they socially acceptable, it is a sign of social strength to be able to do something. So to me, that sounds like a micro thing where you're teaching the individual. Is there something we can do on a macro level that makes that better for uh, makes that better for men or easier for men? So one of the things that I would love to see is an improvement of our medical health care system in dealing with mental health. Because unfortunately, the sad truth is a lot of insurance providers don't cover mental health. And covering mental health is actually in... uh, So in economics, we have a concept called DALIs, Disability Adjusted Life Year, where if someone gets injured, uh, gets a disability, the costs that are associated with that, whether it's medical expenses or quicker, earlier mortality, we try to quantify that. And helping someone's mental health drastically improves their physical being. So for example, people with uh, who take care of their mental health are less likely to be obese, less likely to be addicted to substances like tobacco and alcohol. And so we actually save on a society-wide level if the individual feels more comfortable with their mental health. So that means changing mental health policy uh, in public health, uh, teaching children as young as 
maybe eight years old about how to deal with their mental health, about how to communicate with those things. Because a lot of our public education is focused on uh, check boxes or tests, not necessarily grand strategies to deal with life. And one of the saddest things about the public health care system, which is why I actually target the second uh, demographic of my book, aside from young men, to also educators and parents, uh, hmm. to start creating the environment for children to start dealing with more real-world issues, more real-world uh attainable emotional issues. So learning to deal with those in a healthy, responsible way, uh, that's something we can do on a macro level. And on the individual level, I we need to do everything we can to encourage that. So one thing that I am very uh, very open is, is about giving compliments. Men are drastically robbed of compliments that they receive. Uh, it's actually very funny because uh, Something that we tell a lot of young men is that, oh, you should get big to get girls, you should get big to feel confident. And most of the time when men get very muscular, most of the compliments they receive are from guys. They never receive it from girls who are most sometimes the people who they want those compliments for. And yeah. so uh, we, we set like drastically different standards of what it looks like to be successful. And when people don't meet that and they don't get complimented for trying their best or at least trying to find a way forward, they fall into very depressive places. I think the best chapter that I wrote in my entire book was my chapter on vanity and how men are very predisposed to vanity and how that can drastically harm them. So love that topic. Can you ex uh, kind of expound on that more? What do you mean by vanity? What is what's a what are some concrete examples of men besides obviously like getting bigger? Right. That's one like that's a, <laughs> I mean, that's an easy Instagram like pick on the guys who are getting like really buff steroid use that sort of thing but well, are there so other examples actually, or no, no, but just on steroid use it's actually incredibly terrifying how, how bad it is because while both men and women experience body dysmorphia um, women are more predisposed to anorexia for mm, men there's right. the compliment which is called bigorexia where they're constantly obsessed with getting big there was a study done by the uh, Welsh government they did an entire study in the entire UK and they found that 3% of men have admitted to using steroids, uh, image and performance enhancing drugs for, yeah. for aesthetics, not for any sports, but just to look bigger. So that's 3% yeah. of the population using an illegal controlled substance to drastically change their biology, which has massive implications for their health. And yes. all they're doing that is for the appearance of looking bigger. And I'm very worried about things like uh, what we see in like Instagram celebrities or bodybuilders or actors in superhero movies who, who claim to be natural, but are actually right. selling an unrealistic image of, of being muscular. And yeah. that's coercing and forcing a lot of young men into thinking that that's what they should look like. And some of them will develop bad uh, experience with food, and others, I'm afraid, will start abusing drugs. There were cases of, like, 15-year-olds who are trying to enter bodybuilding comp competitions and started taking anabolic steroids. And oh, I'm very worried about that because sports like bodybuilding are unfortunately encouraging young men into that direction. And we like to think that women are more predisposed to vanity than men, but it's expected that by 2025, men are going to overtake women in the number of plastic surgeries done. And in fact, uh, the really? pandemic, the pandemic uh, supercharged that because people were always looking at themselves in the camera, in the mirror, uh, and that created a lot of image issues, especially for men. In South Korea already, men get just as many plastic surgeries as women. And globally, that's going to start changing. Okay, so I have to know what kind, like what kind of plastic surgeries do men get? Uh, generally, the common ones uh, for nose, jaw, forehead, uh, hair replacement surgery, those types of cosmetic surgeries. Those are the okay, most popular yeah. ones. 
Interesting. That's really fascinating. Um, the nose one, though, there was an 80% growth in uh, rhinoplasties uh, yeah. over the past five years, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting you talk about that. Um, someone I appreciate. Are you familiar? I think his name's Noel uh, Dreisel. He's kind of oh, yeah, uh, I've a seen short. Him. Yeah. 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 And I, one thing I appreciate about him is that he's very open about a steroid use because not that that should be encouraged, but at least he's like, look, these other guys are not natural and we need to stop saying we're natural if we are. And I think that's definitely a first step. I think that's an important step because once when we start realizing, because once again, it's about dealing with all the costs because when you're 15, you just want to look good because you want to impress a girl or whatever. Uh, you're not thinking long-term impacts because if you take right. steroids, your heart is going to grow and expand and you're going to pre be predisposed for heart failure when you're older. Yeah. So we're, people are not thinking like that. Uh, and at 15 years old, no one is thinking like that. And we can't, it's wrong for <laughs> us to expect a 15 year old to be able to think like that. That's yeah. uh, asking a little too much. So Do you it's, think, it's all you think we could go ahead? Sorry. No, no, no. You continue your question. Oh, I was going to ask it. So do you think, but do you think, uh, and this is something I'm trying to do with my boys. My goal is to get them to think like that by the time they're 12. And I think that is possible. There was a time where they kind of do like more because that, that is a skill that you learn. I think if that makes sense, you can't. And is that something that we could do on more, more on a micro level or at least through macro teaching when you talk about talking to an educator? So, uh, generally speaking, this is something that we have to consider because, uh, uh, at least when I was young, I was a very precocious kid. I did like gifted, talented program. And I think that we grossly overestimate children. If we just take the small sample size of children who did very well. So I, yeah. I, I could understand a lot of complicated things when I was younger, which I yes. think kids in my cohort took a little bit longer. We should always try to, if we're doing it on the macro scale, always try yeah. to make public policy in the way that it would benefit the most number of people as possible. There are some children you could explain to them, uh, what, uh, uh, give them the standard sex ed talk about consent, about uh, use of contraceptives. Uh, you could you could give that to them. In Germany, they teach children about how to use condoms as young as the age of six. And that drastically reduces the rate of child abuse because children can talk about whether they're being abused or not. They have the vocabulary to understand and speak that uh, speak about it to their parents, to teachers, to authorities. But we need to create the system to slowly move in that direction. I think it'll take a couple of years for us to slowly move that back and forth because while the United States has a lot of issues, a lot of the issues that the United States has regarding uh, our education policies, that there's, it's very unequal, asymmetric, poor, yeah. uh, poor areas. They're very far behind versus wealthier, more affluent areas. So it's a matter of trying to find the most effective approach is start teaching those things as early on as possible. Hopefully, uh, if what yeah. you're doing is right, try to get this as young as possible, maybe even before they're 12, before they hit puberty yeah. and fix all of these problems. Oh, but my goal is for them to be like that when they're 12. And that means you have to start teaching it earlier. So I'm agreeing with you. And I think when we're talking about our audience here, so your, you, your secondary audience was educators and parents. So for parents yes. who are listening, the, the data the, or data, I should know the difference, uh, is clear that uh, if you, the earlier you start teaching your kids, especially with the internet, like it, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want them to find out about that too early. It's like <laughs> the internet has changed yeah. that quite a bit. Yeah. So I, anyways, what, what I, I think, uh, go ahead. Oh yeah. So one of the sad things is if you don't explain to your children about uh, sex ed properly, uh, before they're seven or eight years old, they're going yeah. to find out just because they're on the internet. 37% yeah. of the internet is pornography. You can't keep it away from them. Even if you try 
And so at that point, we have to start thinking, what is the most effective way to make them responsible? Because we're sending them into a dangerous world. That's yeah. just the truth. Uh, and we need to make sure, how do I make them more agentic, more powerful, more capable in order to deal with all the excess information that they bombard with? And I think encouraging them to, one, be very critical about information that they're receiving and talk about that come to their parents and ask questions if they're very confused, I think creating that space for that is the first step. So being willing to listen to your children's weird questions, being willing to take the time to explain things in a way that they can understand, I think that's very important. My mom explained to me everything when I was like eight years old because she yeah. was, she's a teacher, she's a tutor, she yeah. knows how to explain things to children. At one point, she taught like a 13-year-old calculus because she was able wow. to bring everything up to them in a level that they could understand. And so it's just a matter of creating that type of system. Yeah. And of course, I, and I appreciate what you said, because I think a lot of times people are like either, oh, that system's bad because I can't imagine it, or it's we should put that system in place tomorrow. And it's like, no, you have to slowly move over to that system. You can't just like people always want drastic change. And that's generally not how it works. Um, I mean, There's sometimes no you can make that happen. There's no one size fits all for children. There just right. isn't. Very true. Um, definitely have found that, you know, even as you were talking about your grandpa, I was like, ah, oh, that's my second one. Like, uh, <laughs> like I'll say something positive to him and he gets really excited. I say something negative to him and he just kind of just keeps doing what he's doing. He like does not even like, <laughs> and it, it, yeah. Mm. So, uh, well, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe he'll end up with a motorcycle when he's 71. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, did want to return to that real quick. And, uh, I think I, I remember you mentioning this. Is there a lesson, uh, is there something from your own father that you took away that helped you think about your, your book? Mm -hmm. So my father, I love my dad. He was an incredible dad, but he, he's devoted so much time in order to take care of me. He's had a very rough childhood. But mm. one of the sad things about me and my dad is, uh, he's, he's actually a film director right now making a movie. Uh, oh, he's... Cool. Uh, He's always had a difficulty explaining about his experiences when he was younger. Uh, I didn't, he had a very rough childhood, and I didn't even know about that until my mom explained to me when I was 12. And my mm. daddy's always struggled with trying to talk about it. And I think about how much, uh, there were so many times when I didn't understand why my dad was doing, why he was spending like hours in a different city doing this job that he hated. I could never understand why he was so, well, he's a workaholic essentially, why he was like that. And I always thought that, oh, maybe he just doesn't care about family as much. And I never mm. really understood that because I don't think I ever got it experience from him until I was much older about understanding why he does all the terrible jobs that he does. Uh, he traveled cr uh, crazy amounts even when he was sick uh, because he was in an IT job. And he did that because he wanted to make sure that I could build intergenerational wealth for my children so that in the future of anything that they want to do, if they want to start a business, that I could create a fund for them to do that. I didn't understand that at the time. And right. I think one thing that I learned from my dad is while you're, it's very important to be accountable to your family and be there for your family, you also should be able to communicate to them because hmm. the sad thing is a lot of fathers and sons have this almost competitive relationship between them where the son views like, I want to do better than you, dad. I don't respect you. I think, I, I, I don't think you're there. And then the father's always like, my son is such a disappointment. These are unsaid thoughts in the back of their head and that creates an unfair competition between father and son. And my dad never really thought about that, but I always felt like that because he could never talk to me in any way 
way that was uh, at least more emotional. I, I never really understood about how difficult his childhood was and why he believes the things that he believes, why he's on a path. So I very much want to dedicate a part of this book to airing out your trauma. There's a, a Japanese philosophy called kintsugi, where if there is a pot that breaks, you repair it and inlay it with gold. And you say that because of the trauma that the pot has been through, that there's a unique story there and it's more valuable for that. And I yes. think that a lot of men try to repress their uh, their suffering, their trauma, and that makes it makes it seem as though that they're very aloof, hard to connect with. And I think being able to communicate with that, because my, my, my dad isn't scared about talking about any of these things. He just doesn't like doing it. And he doesn't really know how to. So I'm thinking creating the environment where we can talk about our trauma, whether it be in front of a therapist or with our friends, with our families. I think it's a very important step to not only be. Uh, emotionally mature and emotionally developed, but also to help younger people or people of different backgrounds empathize with us more and hopefully work with us better in creating something. Because if you understand why a person is maybe a little prickly, you can at least try to w work with them, try to understand, see them as a human. And I think f for the longest time, I had a difficulty with my dad just because of how busy he was, uh, how much he was trying to do for me, and I could never see what he was doing for me uh, right. until I was much older to understand that. Yeah, once you start paying your own bills, like it's amazing how that changes your perspective, right? <laughs> I mean, I learned when I was a little older, when I was fourteen, before I could right, pay right. my own bills. But, uh, but I mean, if I, but I learned a lot from him, and as more through less of him explaining to me, more of observation. But yes, some people might not learn with that, especially if their relationship. might relate. My dad was always there for me. I was like, mm. never. We never had major fights between us. So if Got you it. have a more strained relationship with your dad, maybe even looking at that, uh, just from learning, from observing, that might not be possible. So one of the things that I care about a lot is making sure that young men are socialized and finding good mentors in life. Yes. So uh, very I, much about how to create good relationships with people who are older than you and trying to find mentorship. Yeah, and, and, and so, so I'm I hearing that from my dad. Yeah, yeah, I love that, and that, I mean, that's so important, and that's really incredible that you do have that strong relationship with your dad, and even kind of what you're mentioning. Not everyone has that, and that is that's such a gift. Uh, I'm listening to I your you it. kind of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a good relationship with my dad, and it's um, I literally had uh, he was working at the college I went to, and I had like three or four guys walk up to me and say, and you know, for me it was just normal because he's my dad, right? I'm like. That this is the way everyone is with their dad. And I had three or four guys walk up to me and be like, man, I wish I had the relationship with my dad that you have with your dad. And I was like, that was a, that was a great moment for me because I realized what I had was exceptional. You know what I mean? Yeah, like not yeah. everyone has that. And, um, that's a really, I mean, gratitude's an important part of life anyways, but, um, I'm sorry. That's just me trying to relate what you're saying. And I just think it's very important. And if you don't have that, people do need that. Um, yeah. so just agreeing with you. Yeah, because unfortunately, if people don't have good role models in their life, they find it. And for a lot of young men, if they're in a place where they don't have a strong male role model finger, they'll try to find the first one. And if they're in the inner city where there's a lot of gang violence, it's going to be members of a gang. It might be older siblings who are members of a gang. If they get incarcerated, mm -hmm. institutionalized, that might be people in prison where their yeah. role models would be criminals who are hardened by a system. So I think it's very important that in the individual level, we try to find the best role model possible, try to be a little bit more respectful for our adults, try to understand them, talk to them. But on a macro level, it's so important that we are creating every opportunity we can for mentorship programs for children who don't have strong father figures, strong male figures in their lives. Because if we don't, 
there are bad places they will go down. Yes. And I want to try yeah. to minimize that as much as I can. Absolutely. So I'm um, looking at your, you kind of have a threefold structure here. Um, and I kind of rewrote it in my own words, so apologies. Uh, hopefully this still tracks what you're saying. You have accountability or responsibility to others. And yes. then you have the need to be driven or purpose. And then you have the need to be disciplined, um, which is kind of like anti-addictive behaviors, that sort of thing. Free of your chains. It, I like to think of it Free like of that. your chains, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can you give us, um, and I think you've given some of those, and uh, I don't mind if you repeat yourself a little bit here. What are three uh, macro ways that we could address this as a society, like each of those three issues? Or maybe those okay. three characteristics we're trying to create. All right, so if we want people to be more accountable, we need to create more mentorship programs for young okay. men. Uh, rep because uh, un representations do matter. Having people who look like you in positions mm. of power uh, or doing the right thing is a good motivator. It starts teaching children from a young age, especially boys, because while both young boys and girls need role models, uh, young boys are way more extreme. If they have a good role model, they improve drastically. If they don't have one, they get hurt negatively. And women tend mm. to be a bit more... Uh, much uh, a little less variant a bit more uh, even on that uh, so that's very important it's very important that we create a broader system of good role models uh, we acknowledge people society-wise of those who contribute to society well uh, instead of venerating a lot of people who are not necessarily the best example for children I think there are certain celebrities that it's great that we venerate and certain ones that there aren't. So on a macro mm. level, choosing who our heroes are is very important. Uh, creating good mentorship opportunities for children, especially underprivileged children, is incredibly important. Uh, I did a lot of volunteering. Uh, I did a lot of tutoring for a lot of kids who were struggling or at risk, uh, whether they had behavioral problems or just general general anxiety, making trouble making friends. I tried to volunteer and try to help kids in my community. And I think that's very important. We have to create systems that help young men uh, find systems in the world. Uh, that's very important. In terms of finding a cause for people, I think it's very important that we uh, increase the opportunities that young men have, not just in education, because if we can, even if we do make uh, colleges tuition free, there are mm -hmm. some men who just won't find it worthwhile to go there. They might find uh, it much more easier to go into a trade, like trade school. And I think making both of them uh, at least tuition-free or making it easier for people to get into them, and we create good systems inside them to retain people and make sure that people get their education. Because right now, uh, the average time it takes for uh, a person to get a four-year degree is five and a half years. Most people end up taking six. I'm and trying so, to do the math on that. That seems a little, yeah, that <laughs> seems it's, it's, off, it's right? It's a little strange because <laughs> uh, for a lot of people, we're trying to get as many people in college as possible, but some children are very far behind when they get in. <laughs> Excuse me. And so a lot of them are playing catch-up. Some of them are struggling to afford classes because tuition is very expensive. They have to work yeah. part-time jobs. They might have to take a year off. It's becoming yeah. more and more difficult for people to attain that dream. And no matter what people say about college, uh, it's still NPV positive. The rate of the... ROI for even the least profitable degree, which is a philosophy degree, I believe, is still around 32%, even at more expensive institutions. So I have a master's in philosophy. I feel that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a little, some degrees, it's harder to earn back your debt than others, but almost I'm all okay of them, with you yeah. can do that. Almost all of them, you can do that. Uh, so that ends up being the situation. We need to try to encourage that on a broader level for people to find different things. Uh, I love the idea of creating, uh, encouraging people to do a lot of national service programs, whether that be working with people. 
whether that means doing volunteering. Uh, one thing that I encourage in my book on a macro level is making it more lucrative to volunteer, encourage children mm -hmm. from a younger age to volunteer and be active in their community. Because once again, uh, if you have antisocial behaviors, a great way to fix that is to be a volunteer. And we actually found this out. Um, mm. Uh, when children are struggling with school, making them interact with other people uh, has drastic improvements for their mood, their cognitive scores. Uh, so creating a good environment for children is very important. Uh, even in terms of uh, their participation in school, in terms of uh, dealing with people and their chains and trying to free them, we have to look mm -hmm. at broader macro levels that lead people down addictive behaviors. One of those things is just a lack of discipline and glucose. Uh, your blood glucose levels can actually impl uh, can actually dictate how much willpower you have. Where they've done studies and they show that people who are low on blood sugar, whether it be because they skip breakfast, they tend to do worse on resisting temptation, more likely to be aggressive, more likely to be violent. So something simple as giving be better access to school lunch programs, ending child food insecurity, those steps make it a lot easier for us to start dealing with uh, the behavioral and developmental issues that young children have, especially if they grow in poverty. One of the great things that uh, happened out of this latest infrastructure bill, or I believe the previous COVID relief bill, was a child tax credit, about $3,000 fronted for every child under the age of 17, I believe. And it was incredible because it cut childhood poverty in the United States by 56%. Wow. And those types of solutions going forward are the necessary components necessary in order to start creating the system for young men to at least feel uh, emotionally, financially secure, so we can start working on mitigating their ability to get uh, addictive tendencies later on. Because people who have malad maladapted childhoods, uh, mm. where they were dealing with food insecurity, whether they were dealing with violence, they're the ones who are going to develop those mental disorders, and they're the ones who are going to develop those addictive disorders as well. So working yeah. on those levels is very important. Right, and uh, yeah, and uh, I, I can, there's always that one doubter in the audience. Like, I mean, obviously, as a proviso, everything you're saying here is statistically driven. So there's always going to be kids who succeed and kids who fail who are in each of those groups. But the, the point is, is that we can make huge leaps forward as a society by dealing with this in a statistic manner. Because that's all you can do on a macro level, right? Like, on a, at a micro level, you're going to have exceptional people. Uh, yeah, I've actually received a lot of pushback for some of the ideas. A lot of people, especially if they're very conservative or they want small government, they're very hesitant to this idea. Whereas I like to phrase it this way. I think of, we want children to succeed. So I yeah. want to give them as many opportunities and as many ways to succeed as possible. Because if they succeed, we succeed. Right. So I, I want to well, maximize the cheaper. amount of success for children. <laughs> if you want to think about yeah. that way, it's way cheaper to have, uh, for instead of having someone go to prison for 40 years, to just give them free lunches so that, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I have been fortunate. I've never had to worry about where my next meal is coming. And even if I have a meeting that goes long, I'll still get cranky. And I'll be much more, you know, I mean, like, I think we all understand that on like an instinctive level, like if a kid is missing a lunch and then we're like, why is this kid angry? It's like, I, you know, Joe, you were super angry. <laughs> I shouldn't use that name. That's my editor's name. He's got, I'm not calling out Joe. <laughs> um, we'll say John. We love yeah, you, that's Joe. my brother's long name. He probably won't even listen to it. It's fine. Uh, but John, <laughs> John, like John, if you skip this meal, like, I mean, you're, you're really angry and you're, you know, whatever, like 32 years old, like I'm 32. If I skip a meal, I'm, I'm going to be angry. Right. And that's something, mm -hmm. and I might have the discipline to deal with that, but it takes a lot more self-will. So I, I totally understand where you're going with that. Um, 
Is there a macro way of dealing with giving people more purpose and making them or making them more driven? So one one of the things that I've learned. Uh, so this is actually from uh, economics paper that I read, which is about. Uh, uh, Skill traps, that's the term that they used. Uh, the hmm. author, who's uh, William Easterly, I think that's the guy's name, uh, he basically pointed out phenomena about why there are certain demographic groups in the United States that are very wealthy and some that are very poor. He found that, uh, like, Episcopalians, uh, among all the different subgroups of Christians, they, have, they tend to have score one of the highest. They're like 61% of the median income. And yeah. he says, oh, there are certain uh, demographics. Asians do very well. Uh, Indian Americans do very well. Nigerian Americans do even better. And so we're looking at, uh, he was trying to analyze why there are certain ethnic groups or ethnic enclaves or uh, cultural enclaves that do very well and others don't. And he found that because there are historical trends towards something, uh, like the old adage uh, is that, oh, all Jews are bankers or lawyers. It's not because right. all Jews are just like genetically predisposed to being bankers and lawyers. What is because is because in a culture that's what your role models were. Your dad yes. was in this, your uncle was in this, your grandfather was doing this. So you feel more ready to go into that profession because you have some sort of family backing. You have other people who would understand the struggles of going into that profession. So those types of traps make it much, uh, much more likely that you will recreate the same level of affluence or poverty as your parents. So those yeah. types of traps, uh, he analyzed, even successful people, they tend to move together. The college-educated people right now are all congregating inside cities. One of the reasons why New York and the Bay Area and L.A. is so expensive is because all the people with the doctoral degrees, the MBAs, the business startups, they're all in that area. So those places are becoming very concentrated. Um, success there is radically different than in a poorer, uh, more middle-class area or more working-class area like in Ohio or in Kentucky. And so those cycles end up recreating themselves. So on a mm -hmm. macro level, it's very important that we encourage more people to not congregate in the coasts. So, for example, encouraging people mm -hmm. to move out. Like, I'll give you an example. Stanford, uh, MBA program, they will actually forgive all of your debt if you go into middle America and work there for, I think, five to ten years. Wow. Unfortunately, most people don't take that offer because right. they find it so much. They make so much more money living in the Bay Area or in and New York up for and it. repaying yep. their debt than to like have 180k forgiven. So which it's is about crazy. Yeah, I mean, when you think like that's a lot of money to be that big of a difference. Yeah, and so. We need to try to encourage more people to move, at least now because of COVID, uh, some of the jobs becoming remote. We're seeing the, well, some of the greatest levels of internal migration in American history. And yes. so some of that is happening. Californians are coming to Texas and New Yorkers are going to Florida. So we're seeing some of that. But I think on a broader level, we want to try to use public policy to encourage people to at least spread out a bit more. We don't want strong ethnic or religious or cultural enclaves because that makes it, well, it's bad for the national fabric of the country, but it's also making it's a lot harder for people to have good role models or for us to interact with different types of people and creating that environment. Awesome. Uh, if uh, This has all been super informative. I'm really, really grateful that you came and you're here with us today. As we're wrapping up, if you could leave us with just a summary or a call to action for our audience, what would it be? 
Yeah, so a lot of my book focuses on building systems. I care about systems because you can do the right thing once, that doesn't change anything. You could do something right a million times, it still might not change anything. You could be doing everything right today, but only see the results 10 years down the line. I very much care about teaching people to create good systems both on the macro level and on the interpersonal level uh, and the personal level to maximize their any good that they can create for themselves. Ultimately, I care about pe- me- being people to be as free as possible, as agentically free as possible. And for that to happen, creating good systems, whether that means with how they deal interpersonally, with how they raise children, with how they interact with different types of hobbies, how they interact with the world, with other people, Creating good systems is important. So whenever you have a question about any problem that you're facing, think about how do I solve this in the most systematic approach and how do I work with other people to make sure that those types of systems stick and that they're amenable to people and they don't turn people off. Very much focus on solutions, not problems. Everyone will agree on problems and sometimes people don't agree on problems and they start fighting over it. Focusing on solutions, creating mutual outcomes that are based on good systems will almost always make it easier for you to win. So I care about maximizing that type of system. So I view masculinity as solving problems, creating good systems to solve problems. And that's what the purpose of my book is. I love it. Thank you so much for coming today, Anarud. Um, It's been a real pleasure. And uh, uh, I think this is something that we can walk away with and uh, with some hope for the future. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, PJ. Any opportunity I guess to talk about this, I love it. I appreciate it.